Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Greetings and welcome to episode 12 of the Believe Knicks podcast. I am Matthew Miranda. I am joined, as always, by Stacy Patton. Stacy, how are you on this fairly late Monday evening, almost 11 Eastern time? How are you? Uh, doing pretty well. The Knicks are up 12 points against the Utah Jazz on the road, and Randall, RJ, and Mitch look like Bosch, LeBron, and D. Wade. So that's a, that's a pretty good night. Yeah, we were saying just now off the air that when we when we agreed to to do the recording during the game, I think there was an unspoken understanding between us that it's the Knicks. They're in Utah. They'll probably be losing. So we'll just maybe use that as a jumping off point, but. It's actually a looks like an extremely. It's either going to be a great win or just another crushing heartbreak after that Laker loss. Yeah, I mean the thing is, if RJ Barrett and Mitchell Robinson play like stars, and the Knicks lose a bunch of really close games to good teams, in theory, that's a good thing because it means you're still developing, but you still get a high draft pick. Yeah. Uh, not that I'd ever lose for the Nick for the Knicks to lose, but like. I, I mean, there was a time when, like, you know, when the Knicks were really not going to the playoffs, right, where technically that's the most optimal outcome, right, when you want a good draft pick, but you want to see the team and the young guys especially play well. Yeah, and you can, I mean, you can mix and match and do things ideally. Somebody wrote um, somebody wrote earlier today about, on, on Twitter, how Cleveland has just lapped the Knicks in terms of a, a young team, like, making an ascent, and I think... Some of that is stuff that you don't see when the team is failing. So, like, Darius Garland didn't come out of nowhere. But if you're not watching him night in and night out, you might not have seen the progression that would lead to, like, where he is right now. So maybe you would hope with the Knicks that maybe similar things are happening with players, certainly like Barrett and Mitch, but even to a lesser extent um, with Obi and with Quickly and uh, yeah, and I mean, others. It's worth noting, like, um, it's not an excuse. The Cavs have had better lottery luck than the Knicks. Uh, the Cavs got to draft Evan Mobley. So, I mean, if Knicks fit, like, it's if we drafted Darius Garland over RJ Barrett, like, I don't think you can convince me that the Knicks would be that much better. Like, they wouldn't be the Cavs right now, right? And that's not to take anything, yeah. anything from Garland, but they got Garland and they got Mobley. And Okoro's been good. And they already had Kevin Love has been useful this year. Mm-hmm. Um, they were able to get Jared Allen in a trade, right? So mm-hmm. um, they, I mean, this has been a long time coming, but there is a lot of talent there and, and the Knicks just don't have that. And I think they've done pretty much the best they could. So, Yeah. And something that will be, we're, we're going to talk about um, some of the trade rumors in a little bit, but um, one thing again, interesting about that, that Cav Ascension is that they got in on it, on the Harden deal to get Allen. It wasn't like a primary uh, where Brooklyn just looked to make a deal with the Cavs. That was something that worked out to Cleveland's advantage because um, there were other – now I'm trying to remember if it was Levert or Harden. It was one of the – it was one of those trades, one of those, like, it was a three-team deal that Houston got in on. Um, and there's been a lot of talk now. Like, this is the kind of year where maybe the Knicks don't make that blockbuster trade, but maybe you get in on something or just make a smart pickup, whether it's – you know, opening up room for someone on your roster who who you want to see more, like Reddish, or maybe you're able to pick up a, a young player or just something something that's not the headline. The Knicks always go for the headlines. I would like to see them make a nice under-the-radar move, and I feel like this front office has been a little better about 
Certainly I would say a lot, right? I mean, yeah. they haven't. That's basically that's basically what they've done, right? They haven't. The only young player they've traded is Kevin Knox. Right. And they, sorry, Kevin Knox and Dennis Smith Jr. Right. So in Kevin Knox's case, they traded him for another young player, right? Uh, or in a deal for another young player. A better. And then Dennis. Player, you know? Yeah, and then Dennis Smith Jr. Like that is kind of those are the two real moves of significance you can talk about in terms of trades. And those were moves on the margins. It was like, we have a young prospect who is a free agent this year. We're probably, you know, for best for both parties are probably interested in a change of scenery. Uh, let's upgrade. And, you know, it in like, I think people are making a big deal about this Cam Reddish thing and kind of the implications of that. But, um, but I think it was really just like, you know, re- it's kind of refilling the, you know, refilling the coffers in terms yeah. of like young developing pieces. So, um, you know, that's where uh, it's just a move on the margins in a different way than perhaps that Rose move was on the margins. So, um, so, but I mean, I think that that's, they've kind of been the opposite in that sense. Now, will they make a big move at some point? Eventually, sure. But I, I think that what we've learned at least is unless there comes you know pressure from the top, this isn't going to be a, a team that tries to make a splash. This is a team that's going to be very circumspect um, and take their time and, and wait for the right move. So, which is honestly a big relief. Um, when I so let's start with the, I can't call it the news of the day, but the rumor of the day is that the Knicks um, made what was called, I think, a competitive offer. Can't remember the term now, but like a a, a good offer to Portland. Um, wait a minute before we get into that, Stacey, did you see the game? Well, I'm going to throw out a little Nick trivia. Um, if you already know the answer to this one, I apologize to everyone. Um, but I thought this was a great trivia question that they had um, on MSG the other night. And I'll ask it now, see what Stacy thinks, and then give you the answer later in the podcast. Uh, Mitchell Robinson, who is on the verge tonight of a 2020 game um, after three quarters, which is just part of his incredible surge, um, in the middle third of this season. Mitchell Robinson just, I think, moved in a fifth on the all-time list for shot blocks in Knicks history. Um, do you know the four players ahead of him? Because we're going to talk big men today, and we're going to talk Knicks big men in history, so I thought that was a good question to... Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, when did they start tracking blocks? Because... Not until the... Definitely not until the 70s, um, and maybe not... I'll look it up real quick. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not until, like, the mid-70s. All right, so Willis Reed is not on Willis the Reed list. Willis Reed is not on the list. Nobody before, like, 1980 is on the list. Okay, I mean, yeah, that's... We'll, we'll, we'll wait, but my guess is Pat and Camby are two that I guess are on there. Um, I don't think Tyson Chandler played enough years, but Pat and Camby are the two I'm... I'm very confident on there. Yeah, I usually feel good about these these trivias. I usually do very well with them. Uh, there was one name that I forgot, and there was one name that I never, ever would have guessed um, that he would have been on the list. So we'll get into that in a little while. But um, Ewing and Camby are two of them. Um, yeah, good. Bill Cartwright, um, who people sometimes sleep on historically, and as far as the Knicks go, Cartwright was the third pick in the draft in the same year as Bird and Magic. Uh, I'm sorry, because Bird, I think, actually went the year earlier. He was the third pick the year Magic was taken. He made all-rookie with Bird and Magic. Um, He was devastated 
by injuries. I just read this in Chris Herring's book, um, Blood in the Garden. I didn't know how bad it was, but in the 80s, in the mid-80s, um, the Knicks in 1985 set the record at the time for the most games lost to injury in a season and then blew past that the next year also. And Cartwright, unfortunately, was one of the players, along with Bernard King, who really suffered the most. He had some devastating injuries. Um, and you kind of lose sight of the fact, because I, I remember Bill Cartwright as the Chicago Bulls, you know, man in the middle, awkward elbows, um, really ugly jump shot. But he was a, he was a you know, a big-time player, and it, it doesn't sound at all reasonable now, but when the Knicks drafted Ewing, they didn't move on from Cartwright. They played them together. They made Ewing move to power forward, probably because he was more athletic, but Bill Cartwright was a big deal for a while. Um, even to get them Charles Oakley from the Bulls, like, Bill Cartwright is, is I think, sometimes forgotten, and he's, he's not, you know, a legendary Nick, but, like, he was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good call, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of you're the guy before uh, guy before the guy. You don't yeah. get as much credit. So, so just just as Kevin Knox was the guy before Cam Reddish, we hope. <laughs> so Cam Reddish is gonna be Pat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling it right now, uh, February seventh, twenty twenty two. Cam Reddish, the next franchise. Um, so let's talk about this first rumor, um, which is that the Knicks are showing what sounds like a, a serious degree of interest in CJ McCollum. Uh, McCollum is, has two years left after this year at about 33 million per season. Um, he's usually around, a, I think a 25 and five guy. Good player. Um, what I wanted to ask you first is, do you find it more intriguing if the Knicks were to, it sounds like from what I read so far that the deal didn't involve Randall, would you be more excited by the Knicks pairing McCollum with Randall or replacing Randall with McCollum? I mean, in theory, uh, there's a lot of variables in there, and not least is the fact that um, this is a Tom Thibodeau coach team that doesn't play at a very fast pace, you know, not normally in Randall's usage uh, coming out of ISO. Like, you know, if you're using Randall as like a pick and roll partner for um, for him, you know, for CJ, that's a lot different than um, than if you're, you know, if if you're using him them as like trade take turns in ISO. But the other part of it is, you know, they both Randall together. They're going to make sixty million dollars. So you know, you're getting the TV deal, but that's really a lot of money to spend really on two um, two second options. So um, two second options at best, right? Um, and and McCollum is over is 31 so i see it as if you trade for mccollum i would prefer to trade randall um you know you you get a you get he has two fewer years on the deal um and um you know so you you kind of get out of the last two years of randall's deal Mm -hmm. Uh, and what you have is then you kind of lean into the young guys you have ob rj um you know grimes reddish Mitch, you have a lot of guys who are great next to even IQ, right? He's better when he plays with Rose. Yeah, you have a lot of guys that are great next to other guys who can do things with the ball, but by themselves aren't going to lead an offense. And McCollum gives you that. Um, and I think that, and so you'd probably be doing, you know, the other thing is the Knicks have three young point guards or guard prospects in 
uh, Miles McBride, Emmanuel Quickly, and Rokas Yokubaitis. Um, and the reality is none of them is ready. Uh, Yokubaitis might be, but there's really no way for us to know since he's not here. And they're in no rush, I think, to bring him here. Because you probably have a year or two before you know for sure whether one of those guys is a guy you can count on. And McCollum can be that bridge. And I think that's really what they wanted Kemba Walker to be, right? Just like continue yeah. to compete and build and be the bridge for those guard prospects. But for me, like, I think there are there are offenses in which CJ McCollum and Julius Randle could look really good together. But the, the salaries combined, the fact that it's a Tibbs offense, and at this point, I'm not sure if they would utilize the two of them as well as we'd like um, on a consistent basis to really get the most out of that. Uh, and McCollum's age make me more wary of pairing them together than using it as an opportunity to uh, to kind of uh, pivot. My first thought when I heard that, my, my assumption was if they were going to acquire McCollum, they'd have to trade Randall. When I first saw that maybe that wasn't the case, I had this initial panic because, like you said, if those two are combining to make $60 million over a few years, it seems like you've probably capped yourself into a fairly defined and not cathedral-sized ceiling. But, and then I was like, but then I worried also like, okay, if they're going to trade, if they're going to acquire McCollum and not trade Randall and presumably not trade Barrett, then I start having to guess that like, okay, Fournier is going for cap matching reasons. I would assume Obi Toppin is going in that deal. Because I would assume Portland would want, if they're not getting Barrett, I'm going to assume they want a couple of the Knicks' best young players. Um, maybe not quickly because they already have, you know, Simons and Nasir Little if they hold on to him and Lillard coming back. Like maybe not, a, maybe not that, but like I have to assume they would want Obi. And I'm not at all sure that Obi's ready to step into Randall's role, but I'm not sure that I want to move Toppin to get three years of Randall and McCollum. Um, but then I thought, like, you just raised the issue of the TV money. There's also, and I haven't seen any projections for this. I wrote a piece a couple of years ago for, for Jack had been hinting at this, but I haven't seen any number breakdowns. At some point, the gambling money is going to come into the, the revenue that the league has picked up from, from gaming and from sponsorships and all that is supposed to like explode. And I don't know when that's supposed to happen or how they're going to calculate it or whatever. But when you hear, Oh, Randall and McCollum making 60 million. I mean, if that's half your salary cap, that's not, you know, that's not insane. That's not um, prohibitive. You can make other moves if you still have other, you know, depending on how your roster breaks down, but also I had to assume the cap's going to go up. And if so, maybe it's not such a crazy deal. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I still think half your salary cap in those two players. Like, I mean, you're probably not going to assemble a roster that competes. Um, and you do, and part of it is you do have to pay. Um, you have to pay RJ Barrett soon. You have to pay. Yeah. I think at this point they're probably going to pay Mitchell Robinson. Um, so you know, it's you know, there's it's just tough to kind of see that. But um, I will say, you know. Um, there is reason to believe in that duo, especially like if you told me last year we could pair them, um, you know, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hate that. Right. If you had something like Randall last year, 
but you don't really none, none of them neither of them is a number one option so um i know so i think that's where i'm at on that i mean let me let me ask you a question like to this right um if you were trying to build can you see a title contender being built around cj and randall uh, i mean do you trade rj and try to get a third star immediately um you know instead of trying to pay rj and like cam or something you know like I, i'm just you know how would you think about it yeah i was thinking about that earlier in my brain abstractly yes if you added you know like a top tier top tier top tier guy so for example you know no there's really not a lot of perfect fits for that particular depend what you do then obviously at, at at the three and other spots but like if I had Embiid, if for some reason Embiid walks into the Knicks and McCollum and, and Randall are there, is that a team that can compete? Probably, because, I mean, given what Embiid has shown that he can do without Simmons, I mean, I think if you had him on a team with McCollum, and I, th- I think Randall would be certainly the third star of that group, but I would think that you know, if, if you had Embiid, Randall, McCollum, and then a halfway decent team around them, could you compete? I would think so. Because I would think how many teams are going to be able to compete with defending all of those spots? Like, nobody really has an answer for Embiid. Um, if you happen to have a guy who could lock down McCollum, okay. But, like, and, and, and the fact that Embiid is not some dinosaur center, like, it's not like you have him and Randall both having to be in the paint. They can both step out. They can both handle the ball a bit. I mean, Embiid, I saw a video of like about a week ago of, of moves he seems to have learned watching Kobe and Jordan. Like, I think that could be interesting. Maybe if you had Steph um, next to McCollum and with Randall there, because I think Randall in a Draymond role on offense could be really successful because if, if Randall can attack, you know, four on threes, I mean, that would mean the Knicks would have to actually run a pick and roll. But if you were attacking four on threes with Julius Randle, I think he could be pretty effective in that role. I think it would be interesting to see if if that trio could could go all the way. Um, but I mean, I don't think we're getting a bead, right? It's just it's tough to find. No, if you're talking like so of of stars who might be realistically available, like if Zach Levine goes to free agency and for some reason this summer. He's interested in the Knicks. Do I think Levine, McCollum, and Randall make the Knicks a title contender? No. Um, I don't know what star is going to be realistically available to the Knicks anytime soon. Who's I mean, Cat that- kind of is in that Embiid mold, but not um, not as good. So Who is? Carl uh, Anthony Towns. Oh, yeah. Um, and do I think Towns... Would Towns, Randall, and McCollum be a title contender? I don't think so. I'm not sure, but like, I think that team needs either a two. That pairing needs that needs two really good wing defenders. Yeah, I you mean, need Kat, a stud there. Cat is underrated as a defender. I think there's people who think he's like just really bad. Yeah, I mean, it's more that considering his physical tools, he's never really come close to that. But he's he's solid. But the difference is you don't have it. None of those three are plus defenders, right? So right. that's really the problem there. Um, but no, I see your point. I mean, if, but I think that, yeah, like, I guess the question is if you're dedicating half your cap or more uh, and half your cap, you know, is kind of based on the idea that, um, you know, it's going to work with, um, you know, the, the gambling money and all of that. 
which isn't a, a bad projection to make. And obviously, most of these front office guys, you know, are, are factoring those things into their decision. Um, the question, you know, if you need a, a, I mean, Embiid is a top five player in my estimation. Yeah. Um, if that's the only way to compete, you know, it becomes a little bit tough. And then, um, but I mean, the, the upside of it is I did say CJ is only here for two years, right? Right. Um, and so you might end up capped up two years after this one. So, and then after next year, he would be an expiring, right? Um, so there, you, you don't compromise all of your flexibility there. So I think that's a pretty good point. And, um, I guess the other question is, you know, um, just in terms of if the Knicks do end up using one of them, um, if the Knicks end up using one of those players in a trade to get that star, right. Um, you know, is CJ an upgrade, right? So if you keep him and then you do something like Noel Fournier, Fournier, um, Noel Fournier and like um, Burks, you know, yeah. just like a poo-poo platter of vets and maybe a couple seconds, um, you know, is that going to palpably change you know, what they're able to do? Um, and, um, you know, it, or is that is that just a better option? You know, is CJ McCollum, if we do trade for a star, is CJ McCollum going to have more value than those guys? I think that's a yes. Um, I also think if you traded Randall for CJ McCollum, because the shorter contract and because I think he's, he's just, he's a better player, I think with more playoff experience that I think would help. Um, And, um, but I guess the other question is, you know, if you were to trade, if you were to try to pair Randall with, with CJ, would, um, would you be willing to trade any of the Knicks young players? I think I'd have to say if, if I'm doing it, I have to, because I cannot see, Portland might be in a little bit of like, hey, we're just trying to save. Like you saw the trade they made with the Clippers where they sent out Norman Powell and Robert Covington and got back really nothing. Um, so that the Allens, who are like one of the richest families on earth, could write off like a tenth of a percent of the luxury tax. Portland clearly is trying to move on from money, which might work in the Knicks' advantage. But in, in any case, I don't see how you make that deal with the Blazers unless you take back some kind of money, like longer-term money that Portland wants to move on from, I don't see how you can possibly acquire McCollum without giving up something that hurts. Um, I mean, I can't remember the the last time a player of McCollum, when even there have been times when Lillard has been out and McCollum has has had some really torrid stretches. I can't think of the last time a guy like that moved for, for basically a painless deal. Um, and again, unless Portland is just strictly in a like, there's a lot of talk that Jody Allen wants to sell the team. So maybe, and they're having some issues in Portland with, um, the lease is going to expire, um, with the, with the, the lease, if it doesn't get negotiated on their arena fairly soon, the rights, um, revert to the city, but the owners haven't brought it up yet because they said there's some other. There's another deal that that's more urgent. It's it's actually like they're old. Whatever building the the Blazers are in now, I think the building they were in before is still on that same compound, that same area. And for some reason, the owners are more interested. They've said in resolving that issue because it comes up more urgently. The point of all this being, Paul Allen died. There seems to be some uncertainty, more so than usual, in what's what's generally been a stable market. Um, so maybe you can get. 
maybe you can catch a team in the middle of that kind of uncertainty where you can acquire McCollum for less than it would normally take because they just want to clear money. But if, if there's any competence in Portland, if I'm Portland, I've got to get back. You know, let's talk. If you don't want to talk Obi, then let's talk... Um, I don't even know. I, really, I can't see Portland needing any of the Knicks guards. Like, any of them. Um, Not even Grimes? I was thinking about Grimes. Um... Because they just traded Norm Powell, and Grimes gives them that, except um, I think he's going to be a better player than Norm Powell when he's fully ready, but he also makes $2 million a year. So So now we're in the weird universe where I'm asking you, like, is Quentin Grimes off-limits to you in a potential McCollum trade? For non-top-10 players, he is. Okay. Uh, And so is RJ. Um, So is quickly at this point still. Quickly Um, still, huh? Yeah. Um, because I think that he's shooting poorly, but the rest of, of his game is nicely. what he's doing, he's doing a lot, a lot of, other of things nicely. And I, I think like, you know, it's like, um, if you look at like advanced stats, like Kyle Lowry for much of his career showed up as a top 10 guy, even when he was viewed as like just a really good point guard. Right. Um, because it's those little things, right? He drew a foul. Like he hasn't had a good game tonight, but he drew a foul on by boxing out Hassan White, Hassan Whiteside. Right. Um, you know, he he const- he's a good rebounder for his size. He pushes the ball. He gets them to play with pace. Um, like those kind of things matter. Right. Yeah. Um, and if the thing that's wrong with him right now is he's that he's shoot- not shooting poorly. Like I'm willing to take the bet that he's a much better than 34 percent three point shooter. Right. Uh, given yeah. his free throw shooting given last year. So he's still in that untouchable category for me, uh, unless we're getting like um, unless we're getting someone like Donovan Mitchell or like Booker or like. Right, you know, a guy like Beal is right on that borderline and probably above it. But um, if I had to rank the Knicks assets, it'd probably be RJ, um, then Grimes. I would put Grimes right now above quickly because it's just so easy to see his path as like a a really elite three and D player. Yeah, but I'm still playing quickly after that, and then um, and then you know. Ovi and Mitch are still guys I don't... I mean, Mitch, I think, is is the best player on the team right now. I, I'll actually say that. I think he's the best player on the team. But the contract situation is weird or whatever. So I can get them making him available for, like, a star. Because mm. um, we are going to have to pay him. But um, but that's kind of where I'm at. So, like, yeah, and I, for CJ, like, I like his game. But it's not going to make us a title contender. Which is not a reason to not do the trade. Right. But if we have to give up, you know, OB even, um, IQ... Um, RJ, Mitch, uh, Grimes, like, I'm not really about that. McBride, even, like, I guess you have to do it, maybe, if because they do have McBride and Yokubaitis at some point, and, and quickly, like, out of those three, you're not going to keep all three of them. Right. Um, so at some point, they're going to have to make a decision. I'm not sure I want them to make that decision for CJ McCollum at this point. Uh, I would I would have had to see a lot more from Randall than I have this year to really want to go all in on that. And, um, so speaking yeah. of Mitch, um, Mitch has been more and more impressive for a while now. Um, where are you in terms of what you would be willing to pay Mitch to keep him? Like if Mitch said, if Mitch comes in and he wants four years, eighty million, are you giving it to him? Four years, eighty is probably too much. Um, the years know, of the what... money or both? Uh, it's the money. Yeah, uh, twenty mil a year. Um, 
I think four for 50, like Robert Williams, for perspective, Robert Williams got four for 54. Now you can do the Fat Joe meme and say yesterday's price is not today's price. Right. Um, but um, that is still paying well over market. Um, and I'm not sure we really want the Knicks to do that, uh, even though Mitch, Mitch is hugely valuable. Um, so I'd prefer to do the, the Robert Williams price. But I mean, for perspective, Capella makes, I think, 18 a year. Um, and, um, Miles Turner was making 20, but has two years or another year left on his contract. And Mitch is probably, I mean, you know, he's probably still not at that level as consistently as you'd like. Um, I think four for 60 is, I, I think that's what he's worth. Um, I'd like to get in a little bit under that. And on the flip side, I think I'd probably like four for 72 would probably be my max. Four for 72. Okay. Um, How about you? I'm torn with it. I mean, the obvious answer is going to be like, it's hard to judge in a vacuum because my Mitch, my, my Mitch value varies depending on who I'm building around with him. I don't think long-term that Mitch and Randall work together in a way that maximizes um, what Randall can do. So my thinking would be tied into like, do I still think I'm going to move forward, you know, with Randall as a big part of what I'm doing? If so, then I'm going to look to move Mitch for a center that I think would pair better with Randall, more like a three and D center, like a Turner. I know those guys don't grow on trees, so I don't know who else I'm, I mean when I say like a Turner, but if yeah, if um, you know, no, I mean, I think that, um, that's the thing. That's part of it, though, right? Like, if the whole idea is, we've been talking a lot, right? Like, Randall needs a three and D or a center who can block shots and shoot threes. But to your point, they don't grow on trees. And if Mitch is this good, mm-hmm. why not focus on pairing him with the right center next to him, right? It's easier to find a stretch for a. And I mean, him and Julius have played together three years, and my argument is that this year and the year before, he's been the better player. Um, and that's not just a knock on Randall. It's also like Mitch is that impactful. Uh, when you when this helped... year and last season, Mitch was no this year and his Julius Randall's been here three years, right? Oh, you mean Randall's the... first year and this year? Yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. It's it's you know I'm not sure. My conviction of building around Randall has obviously been dampened this season and. It's a disappointing season, but there have just been so many nights where Mitchell Robinson looks, like you said, like the best player on the team. I don't think, you know, hopefully he isn't the best player on your team. But I would say this year, in addition to Obi, there there are not a lot of Knicks this season that have felt like they've shown growth and improvement. And I don't think anybody has. Barrett has, I would say, in terms of bouncing back the way that he has. And... Obi obviously has has slowed some from the start, but I still think has shown enough that his season is already a success. But beyond those two, it's probably Mitch. I mean, like you're saying, maybe quickly too, just not for shooting, has grown in other areas. But like, I'm very happy um, with what I've seen from Mitchell Robinson. It's really been, I don't know when it's safe to say someone is over something, but like, Mitch hasn't had foul trouble issues this year either. He didn't really last year. 
and he hasn't really this year. And that was always such a big thing with him. Um, and the question this year also was like, okay, he's coming off of a foot injury. He's in a contract year. Like, how's he going to do? Once he got his conditioning back, I've, I've been very, very happy with his play. Yeah, I mean, I think that was a big thing. Now, the question that comes if you're handling, and this is why I would hesitate for $20 million a year. Uh, he's a big, he has had injury issues in the past, and he showed up, like, you know, was good weight. That's what people have said, right? But he did show up out. I mean, with this conditioning, not ready to go, right? Mm-hmm. You can blame the injury, but there have been whispers of, you know, I don't think it's a professionalism thing as so much as a maturity thing. And I think that it's always tough when you talk about athletes like that. So I think to couch it, 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 like my take or, you know, what I've heard is not that he's an immature person, but given, you know, the standard of the NBA or someone you're going to give $20 million to, uh, I think for the Knicks brass from what I've heard, it it leaves something to a little something to be desired. Um, But I I mean, I, to that, I I don't think he has a work ethic issue, right? Um, I don't think he has a, um, um, you know, those kind of problems. Yeah. I think it's more just, um, you know, there was probably something they would want from like a star that he wasn't quite giving them. But uh, but I don't think that's a big issue. And yeah, to your point, when the conditioning has been on this year and last year, he was terrific before he got hurt last he was year. Terrific last year. And it's like all the things that we know that were issues for him early in his career, right? Making the right decisions, not just being a guy who chased blocks. Mm-hmm. Um those kind of things, he improved tremendously. Like he's staying down on ball fakes. Yep. Uh, he's moving his feet well. Um, he doesn't chase. He's actually for a shot blocker for a guy like that. He's he's terrific rebounder because he doesn't chase blocks. He, he doesn't have a shot at. Which, I mean, guys like Hassan Whiteside, you know, or, or other players who have like who put up good blocks numbers and rebound numbers, but never really impacted the game. Like he is not that player. He is a guy that has a massive impact. I just think that's the reason you I'd want I'd want comfort that him coming to camp with the conditioning issues isn't going to happen again. Right. Um, so I want to ask you about kind of Mitch in perspective. Um, if they were to resign him and bring him back and we know what, you know, if, if Mitch comes back, we know what we're hoping for. I think, you know, no one anymore is holding on to the dream of workout video, Mitch, busting out crossovers on the perimeter and launching threes. We know Mitch is going to be like a vertical floor spacer, um, a rim protector, uh, you know, an impact, an an impact rebounder Uh, on the offensive and defensive end. He's really become like uh, a pretty astute rebounder. As far as Mitch, let's say he stayed. um, Where do you think Mitch's place could end up in Nick history as far as centers? Because, They've had some very good ones. Um, they've had some lean years also. Um, we've seen some guys this century who are worth remembering and maybe a bunch who are not. Um, where would you contextualize what Mitch could be in terms of his ultimate like impact with this team? Yeah, I mean, I think you know the best center of this century, I think, is pretty clearly Tyson Chandler. Um, and I think that he definitely has the ability to get there another guy he reminds me of a little bit is marcus camby but i think one stylistic difference between the two of them is i do think mitch is already an elite rebounder and camby did have that thing where he could get bodied a little bit he was skinny so i think tyson chandler is is the comp 
um, will he reach that on as consistent a basis? Um, you know, I, I don't know, but, um, you know, that's what I'm thinking. What about you though? I think you have a much more <laughs> extensive, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, the best center I've obviously seen play for the Knicks is Patrick Ewing. I don't think Mitch will ever get to that level of offensive skill, which is fine, but I think he could really be the kind of player who can win defensive player of the year or be in that conversation or be known as an elite defender, you know, who cares about hardware at the end of the day, mm -hmm. um, besides championships. So, uh, we'll have to see, but those are the names that come to mind. Uh, how about you? Yeah, I think um, he did remind me of Camby initially, the way that he's put on muscle. Like you said, Camby was razor thin, um, did really, really well for um, for his size. But, like, Mitch, is, Mitch has got to be 25 pounds or more. Um and a little taller, and, I think, than Camby also. And he plays a lot stronger too, right? Yeah, yeah Camby was really six eleven, but he, I mean, yep. Camby probably even had higher hops than Mitch. But yeah, there is a difference yeah. there for sure. Camby's guy, but like you didn't. I mean, part of you know when when Camby was there, when Ewing was there, you know, Ewing played you know most of the center. Um, Camby was at spot minutes, but he wasn't a guy that you wanted playing thirty five minutes a game, eighty games a year. And, and and Mitch has the advantage now of the center position not being what it was then, but he has the the muscle to to, to battle with those big dudes for the most part. Um, I think that Chandler is an interesting comp for Mitch. I think Mitch can be a better defender than Chandler was, which is saying something, because Chandler did win Defensive Player of the Year in 2012 with the Knicks. Right. Um, and it's yeah, so and that's just tough, I think, especially in the age of Rudy Gobert and Bam, and so many good defenders, it might be, and Giannis, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, it might be tough to see that actually happen for for Mitch, but, um, you know, he can be that level of defender, I think. Yeah, and and you hinted at this before. What, what I find most impressive about Mitchell Robinson is that you can see it in his game, and you can especially see it when you dig into his numbers. For a guy like Mitchell Robinson to come in and be the the highlight defensive player that he was immediately, not only blocking shots as a rim protector, but what he could do at the on the perimeter, what he could do being a, a, a shot blocking threat on the perimeter. There's not many players that you use that label with perimeter shot blocking threat, um, and I think he had. I I haven't seen it as much, maybe because teams aren't testing him with it as much. But like I. I just always remember being very struck by his ability to be a defensive impact all over the court in the, in the paint and on the perimeter. That's why I'm very excited. I think for what he could end up being. And, and when you look at his numbers and you see that a guy who has is doing statistically so much less than he used to, and yet is producing so much more and more efficiently as a result, there's things to question about Mitch. Like I'm not, entirely sure what to make of him having like a half, a half dozen agents already. And sometimes, you know, some of the, he's cut down on the post game kind of cryptic tweets and whatever that never really looked good. So, you know, there's always things you can wonder about, but in terms of just, I want him on the court. I want him there for his rebounding. I want him there for his shot blocking, even with the things that have cut down, like the lobs, the lobs have cut down, the shot blocks are down the spectacular, like, three-point block. All that stuff is down, and yet that shows me that, like, he's, he's the game is slowed down enough and he's sped up enough that 
He just knows what he's doing now. And a Mitchell Robinson who knows what he's doing can be terrifying for other teams. Yeah, I mean, if he he's he is an elite defensive player in my mind right now, or at least he's been playing like that, like you said, the middle third of the season. Um, he misses free throws and he can't do much outside the paint. But give him credit, a he's he's a terror on the offensive glass. Um, and the teammates are slowly but surely starting to look for him more. Tonight is the last I've seen that the last few games when he get it used to be that if it wasn't a lob. They weren't going to throw him the ball, right? Yes. Now you see that if it's a roll and he has to take a dribble or a step, they trust him to do that. Or if he just has a guy sealed, mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't. Ha- he has nothing. I mean, he's the platonic opposite of Hakeem Olajuwon when it comes to post moves. But he's so big and strong that, like, if he gets position, he can kind of just fling it up there. Um, and and he has decent touch, right? Even the you know, so. Um, so like on offense, he's also, and like, that's without considering how big of an impact his lob gravity is. Um, but overall, I think he could be worth four for 72 and I'd pay to find out if he is, mm-hmm. uh, I think giving $20 million a year is just, um, that, you know, that's what the, uh, you know, if you're talking non Jokic and tier centers, that's what the best get. And I think he needs to, I don't know if he's done that consistently enough to warrant that yet, but, but he also is only 23 and. Sometimes you pay overpay twenty three year old guys. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're gonna if you're gonna pay to to keep if you're gonna gamble, he seems to me worth a gamble more than a lot of people. Um, speaking of players who have impressed this season, I'm curious if your ceiling for RJ Barrett feels any differently to you than it did. I'm I'm. T- Sorry, I'm watching the the Knicks are imploding, imploding late in the fourth. Um, and right, right as I'm about to ask you this question, Barrett, um, of course, misses. Has your opinion of Barrett's ceiling changed at all in light of this recent run of play by him? I, I felt I've always felt that Barrett is not a number one, and I have also felt that Randall and Barrett would work best not together. Um, where do you where, where do you where do you stand right now in terms of like when this however this season ends, assuming nothing crazy happens in terms of what we've seen, season comes to an end. What do you make of RJ Barrett? Yeah, um, it's we just um, we actually when Pod Strickland we just had Seth Part now um, noted kind of Nick's Twitter antagonist, particularly on the subject yes. of RJ Barrett. Um, <laughs> Uh, and it was a fun pod, um, and it was it was a good discussion. Um, so Schwinn has always been someone who's very bullish on RJ's ceiling, and Seth is not. And Seth actually threw out a comp uh, of Marvin Williams, who was a high draft pick, Marvin never Williams. quite lived up to that, but was a very solid, good player for a long time. Right. Um, and... Um, you know, um, I'm somewhere in between those two. I've I've always viewed kind of RJ as someone who might make an All Star game or two. I would I would expect him to, um, and be and be like top out as a top twenty to twenty five player, mm-hmm. which I think you know, yes, Michael Jordan was the third overall pick, but most that's pretty decent value for a third overall pick, right? I wouldn't be complaining about that. Christian you know. Leitner was also a third overall pick. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, uh, and uh, as far as Duke. Grads go. My feelings about Christian Leitner are 
exact opposite of my feelings about RJ Barrett, <laughs> um, which say I was not a fan of Christian Leitner to say the least. Uh, but how do I feel about it? So I think that there's one thing he does really well, and that's get to the rim. He's very good at getting two feet in the paint. Um, and one thing I push back on Seth on, and even he kind of, I wouldn't say conceded this, but like admitted that he probably understated it, was um, that um, you know that RJ doesn't do a good job getting the line. But he this year his free throw rate is thirty point eight percent. Luca Doncic is at thirty point nine. So um, you know to to um, mm-hmm. that's so to put it in perspective, he's getting to the line this year about as often on, as a percentage of shot attempts as Luka Doncic. Now he doesn't create as many shots as Luka Doncic. But he he does a good job of drawing contact. He has turned into a decent finisher. He's not a great finisher, but he gets there a lot. And even if you don't, the thing is, if you get there a lot, you don't have to like even being decent that as a finisher is good because that is a good shot. Um, so those are those are encouraging things from him. Um, and he, I think the most encouraging thing is that he's now put together a second straight season of being a competent three point shooter. Um, and so you put that together and then you add, and then you added uh, the rest of his game and he's pretty good at a lot of things, but he hasn't, this is what Seth was saying is he hasn't really shown an elite skill. So if you're okay at a bunch of things, it usually helps if you're like elite at one. And that's where the closest you can really say is his rim pressure, but I still wouldn't call him, you know, an elite rim pressure guy in a league with guy like guys like John Morant, but he's good at it. Yeah. Um, he's a capable three-point shooter. You can play him at the two or the three. He can run, pick, and roll. I think he's a pretty good decision maker for the most part. Um, so I, I, I mean, I'm feeling good about him. You know, I'm feeling good about him. He's probably not going to get the headlines of a lot of other people because he's neither an elite defender nor a high-volume shot creator. But I think he's going to top out as like one of the guys who can be your second or third best player on a championship team. Um, and uh, you know. That, that's and, and I mean I think that he's shown he's shown the ability to sometimes take over a game. Uh, you know that that thirty six point against LA. You know I think that was the that was a statement game, uh, and it wasn't just the fact that he scored, but he was he hit a big three to tie it and set it to overtime. He had a big dunk on Anthony Davis in transition. Yes. Um, but ultimately, I don't think he's like I think for him to be like a real a big time star, right? The kind of guy who's going to make five All Star games and be the number one option. His pull-up jumper game has to get better. Um, he's shown flashes of it, and I think it might be something he goes to, um, you know, in moments. But I don't see him being someone who can do that at volume. Um, I see him as a guy who, once you have someone like a McCollum, he fits well next to. Mm-hmm. With him and Randall, I don't think they fit very well together, but I also think it's the way they're used. Um, I think they're both good transition players. I would like to see them actually run more pick-and-roll together but we don't do that very much. Um, I, and I think just just the, the whole offense looks bad when you're isolating Julius Randle and um, and having a post up and having RJ stand on the corner, right? But when there's motion, those are the things. And then just, just because it's happened kind of down the stretch, one other thing I'll say is um, they do need to find him. Like, I'm not saying they need to hand over the keys to the offense, but they do need to find a way to get him more involved. Because it looks like the Knicks kind of fourth quarter strategy has been, you know, let Fournier run pick and roll with Randall. And that just hasn't yielded very good results. And it kind of took RJ out of the game. Um, But so to the extent that he hasn't mixed with Randall, I go back and forth with Randall. There's times when I just don't see him 
being part of a a very fun offense uh, given his play style. And then there's times like the first half, first three quarters of tonight, really, where it doesn't feel like that at all. And um, and you wonder how much of it is the fact that um, you know Tibbs likes them to play slow and, and they're kind of discouraged from playing free-flowing. Because I think both Randall and RJ can play that style. And given how devastating both are in space, uh, I think you know they could be pretty good together. And both are decent plus passers. Yes, very true. Um, so the Knicks are going to lose. And I want to ask you, Stacey, I don't remember if we had this conversation or if it was someone else, but I was talking to someone about your least favorite way to watch a team that you're rooting for lose a game. Like for myself, like some people, you know, if your team fails at the foul line, like you're just dying. I cannot stand when your team gets killed on the offensive glass. Like if you're when you're losing and you need a big stop and you get the stop but you can't get the rebound and it, and that's been happening like all night. For some reason that hurts me as a loss more than anything. And I'm curious if there's a if there's a, a way that you just, you know, if your team's going to go out, you don't want them to go out with with this quality. Yeah, that and miss free throws, right? Those are the two things. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it looks like, by the way, to add even more insult to injury, Mitch is going to miss a 2020 game by one point. No. <laughs> um, but there are a few reasons. So I will say offensive rebounds, missed free throws. It, it, it just also seems often like every time there's a bunch of tipped balls or what's called the team rebound. The Knicks just miss though, like they just. It almost always seems to go against the all season. Challenges I feel almost. like that's been. I don't know if there's a correlation for this or if anyone studies it, but in you know in baseball, one of the one of the stats that they're able to use now is um, like fielding in, independent batting. So um, you know, it, it, it accounts for a lot of things, quirks and vagaries that you the hitter has no control over or the pitcher has no control over. The Knicks this. I feel like this season, if you've watched the Knicks. It wouldn't make sense to anyone else. You'd sound like the crazy guy in the film. But they lose seemingly every 50-50 proposition this year. Every single one. And I'm going to get to why I think that's not a complete coincidence. I mean, part of that is just that is mentally how human beings work, right? Psychologically, uh, we tend to focus on those things more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Like my dad would always say, like, you notice every red light you get. And when you have to stop at every light when you're trying to go somewhere, you notice it. But... You know, you never think of the times when you might get four or five green lights in a row. Right. Um, but um, but the, uh, you know, what I'll say with the Knicks is that, um, you know, it, it almost feels like, you know, imagine if you prepare really hard for, for a test um, and then, you know, you, you do it well enough to get an A, but then you forgot to write your name. So the teacher takes two points off <laughs> or like, you know, you don't get the sign right. Uh, that's what it almost feels like a lot of these times where it's like they do everything they can on a defensive position, but there's just a weird tip or like they don't grab it properly or, or something like that happens. Part of that is fatigue though. Uh, if you look at the, the Knicks were pretty good on the glass until the end of the game. And um, if you look at their front court players, RJ Barrett played 43 minutes. Uh, Julius, this, by the way, this is not a tips critique. I'm going to say why I think, this happened, but tonight I'm not going to blame Tibbs for the minutes distribution. But RJ played 43 minutes. Um, Randall played 38 minutes. Mitch played 36. 
The other two starters also played 30 minutes, but, you know, more reasonable loads. Uh, I think that matters, right? Down the, like, Julius looked gassed. Mitch, Mitchell Robinson really needed... He came in with 10 minutes left, and he played the whole fourth, and I don't think that's what Tibbs normally wants to do. Right. But Nolan's Noel was awful. Yes. Like, there's... I'm not... You know, Nolan's Noel was awful, right? Um, he closed with Burks, um, but Emmanuel quickly had a brutal stretch that, um, you know, right when they were trying to build momentum... Um, you know, he was there, he had some good plays, but he had a lot more bad plays tonight and he had some really bad mental mistakes. He even missed, um, he didn't miss two free throws, but he had that challenge, that call overturn. Uh, it's just a bad game. And I, I don't blame T- Tibbs gave him 23 minutes tonight and, um, he wasn't good. Cam, I thought had a good first half stretch. Second half was a little more up and down, but I thought his defense was good. There's an argument. Maybe you could have played him over Fournier, but I don't think Burks and Fournier being gassed was the problem so much. The front court was gassed, and there was no depth behind them. Obi Toppin <coughs> ran the floor well, but you know he had a couple rough defensive positions and wasn't able to make much of an impact. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, yeah, when you talk about the glass, like Donovan Mitchell got a rebound over Mitch. Now, Donovan Mitchell is a freak athlete. I don't want to take anything away from him, <laughs> but, but part of that that's Mitchell Robinson, and that's not a board that Mitchell Robinson was losing for the first half, but. Right. Right. I mean, he, they had to play him to win, and I, that's not one I'm going to kill Tibbs on because this was just a tough game, and and it, it, they were playing a better team, and the bench didn't hold up tonight. So mm-hmm. Utah and Denver are two of those teams that just have that permanent home court advantage just because of altitude. Um, yeah, but- and, I, and you also it, it's it's rough to lose. We just lost to the Lakers with AD, Russ, and LeBron. Yep. And we just, I mean, you could you could see the difference in how Utah runs its offense. Forget not having Gobert. Um, like, they, it's, you know, the kind of things where the Knicks will sometimes miss a read or miss an open guy, or they're a half second, it takes them a second longer to make the read. That doesn't happen with the Jazz. It's yeah. a well-oiled machine. The ball is just going around. When you make a rotation, they, they find it, the open guy. They do three extra passes until you can't make another rotation. They wear you down. Um and um, the Knicks played well on offense. They're lucky to catch the Jazz without Gobert, but um, it, it's just painful on those kind of things. Where um, you know, on the one hand, do I think the Knicks are a better team without than Utah? Probably not. But when you talk about eleven missed free throws, some backbreaking possessions on defense, or sorry, on, on the glass, um, you know, it's uh, some some big missed shots, a lot of missed opportunities. It stings, but you know. That is, and that's also why when people were like the Knicks are five hundred, it's like, yeah, but asking them to maintain it when every night is a team like this, and that's what it feels like it's been. It's tough. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this falls on Thibodeau or not, but um, I'm going to guess it doesn't. I I said earlier, and it's true. Like the the hardest way for me to watch the Knicks lose is when they cannot get an offensive rebound like the whole game. But the hardest, like, the thing I cannot stand just in late game situations, and it happened tonight, um, they were down with just under a minute left. They were down seven. And uh, it looks like I thought it was a bad call. Barrett missed a free throw. Um, Randall looks like, I thought Randall, Randall came down with the offensive rebound, but the referee said that Randall had jumped um, from behind the three-point line too quickly before Barrett's release. So it was called off. Yeah. Utah right. came up the floor and for about 
15 seconds, the Knicks pressured and chased them around um, trying to get a steal. And after 15 seconds, 15 to 20, I think it was 15, Burks fouls someone on the perimeter. I can't stand either go, you know, take five seconds, go for the steal. 15 seconds have gone by. You have to know at that point, there's still almost a minute left. Like, you can't foul at that point. Unless you were fouling, you know, Mitch Robinson and, and you, you can't shoot, like, free throws. I, I don't, I'm sure Thibodeau would have told them what to do. Burks has been around long enough. Heat of the moment and you might be, you know, mentally tired. I just, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not judging Burks or being pissed off at him for what I think was a mistake. I'm just saying as a fan, it kills me when they go that long without fouling and then foul. Yeah. Um, that, that, there's the, no question the there. Special, saying, right? <laughs> it's, it's just so many. And it's the thing is like, it's a Thibodeau team, right? So you think those kind of, um, those kind of mistakes are the attention to detail. You know, that's driving him crazy. And it, it's just frustrating to see. I wouldn't even call it a lack of discipline, but it's just, it's excruciating. You know, it's just the, the worst way. It's one thing if you just get out talented and in some ways they did tonight, but those are the things that you're just like, man, you know, it's things that we had to experience. I mean, uh, like that Bargnani rebound, right? I'm sure you remember that or not the rebound. The three pointer. The three pointer. <laughs> Clyde, I can still hear Clyde saying, what is he doing? Yep. Yes. yes. Um, I remember it very well. But um, yeah, just a frustrating one. Now, have you seen enough to, to – to, we talk about the players all the time. Maybe because it's easier because there's there's numbers and they're the one out there doing things on film. But is it possible from the outside to evaluate Thibodeau this season and determine, you know, are we happy with what he's done? Are we able to identify something he's done differently with, with anything? Or do I, – I feel – not like I do not feel like the Knicks are twenty four and thirty because of Tom Thibodeau is an accurate statement. Um, whatever the reasons are for why the Knicks are where they are this year, I don't think the largest blame probably lies with Tom Thibodeau. But I don't. I'm not sure entirely how to evaluate him beyond his rotations, and I don't know. I mean, if Tom Thibodeau is there primarily because he's a details kind of guy and he's a nuts and bolts kind of guy, and last year it seemed like all that shit got tightened. Like, Thibodeau took over and a lot of drips stopped. And that's a big part of what he does and that's a big part of his rep. How how do you evaluate Thibodeau this season? Yeah, I mean, we talked with Seth about this too. And part of it is I think the Knicks are a roster that you know, from their acquisitions, they look to be a team that is going to be at its best when they can run and play in motion. And Tibbs kind of wants to slow down, play more ISO and straight pick and roll. Um, but they don't really have the personnel. To do. They had Randall last year, but even last year, the Knicks offense wasn't good. Um, right. I think if there's a way to keep what he gives you on defense, but, you know, let them push the pace a little more on offense, let them play a little bit of motion, and I, I don't think he doesn't like. I don't think it's his case where he doesn't understand offense. I've seen him draw up some really good sets. Uh, I think he gets the concepts of space and all of that. Uh, I think he sees the advantages of playing with pace. But as soon as the Knicks like have a few possessions where they might take a bad shot, he likes to revert to what he knows and, and being in control. 
sometimes you just got to live with that. And, um, you know, right now it's, um, I don't know that the Knicks could get better results with another coach. I don't want him to, to be replaced. Um, you know, the other thing, you know, we were talking and, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, you know, even if you know, it's not going to work, just try, try OB and Randall, right. Those kind of things. There is a flip side to that. Right. And we had a coach that was willing to try all kinds of things like Kevin Knox at the two and, We've had coaches that tried Porzingis at the three, right? Um, there are there is a line, right? There is kind of, or you know, like when there's not like when you're just like we're gonna let the players go out and play. You know, Fizdale was you know gave them the freedom. It doesn't seem that like there was a lot of structure on offense, and the Knicks weren't good. Um, but so Tibbs is on the other extreme, and the Knicks have benefited moving him a little bit more, um, at least on offense, to letting them play a little bit more uh, should help. Um, and I think it, it works with the bench, especially with Rose, because I think he does have that level of trust with Rose, but mm. I don't think he trusts the starters like that. And, um, you know, those are some of the, the main things with Tibbs. Um, but in terms of performance, I don't realistically know how they could have been much better than they are this year. The talent just wasn't there. Um, and that's without accounting for the fact, if you told me before this season that Randall was going to regress into from like a great shooter to a, a bad one, yeah, I would have expected something like this. So um, there are discouraging and annoying things about Tibbs. And stylistically, I would like them to play a little bit different on offense. But until the Knicks have the personnel where you can really argue he's holding them back, I'm not going to call for his job or anything. If they, and I, to, to be clear, a night like tonight, it didn't hold them back, right? They just made a lot of mistakes. Yeah. Um, if Tibbs were to evolve, and I would say... Maybe this is a quick, um, maybe this is too superficial a thought to have merit. But when I think, other than Phil Jackson, when I think of great coaches in my lifetime, all of them have shown the ability to win in different ways. Like Pat Riley was completely different from Los Angeles to New York and then Miami. Greg Popovich has won with like grinded out, defensive oriented teams and beautiful, flowing, you know aesthetically lovely offenses in San Antonio. Eric Spolstra, I think, is a coach who does, um, can coach differently in different ways and have a lot of success. Uh, a lot of guys have, 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 a lot of guys are not simply systems. If there was going to be some kind of external um, assistance in helping Thibodeau to evolve, where would we, do we look for that to come from? Would that come from the players like if 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 you gave Thibodeau just straight up you know up and down the court running studs like would that change it up for him is it something the players can collaborate with him on is it something other coaches would have to say I think what I'm really wondering is like if you're gonna go if you're gonna go all the way with Thibodeau and I don't think that's why they hired him I don't think the Knicks hired Tom Thibodeau to win a title but as long as he's there and you're trying to do as much as you possibly can to succeed. Does it all have to be internal? Like, like I think, I think the Knicks style of play and Randall really parallel each other perfectly in that there are built in limits to what they can do. And I think Thibodeau on some level is comfortable with that. It's not a runaway machine. It's not, like you said earlier, how Mitch was the antithesis of Olajuwon's post moves. Tom Thibodeau is the exact socio-political, spiritual 
um, antagonist to Don Nelson. Like they could not be stylistically, philosoph- philosophically, like more different. Um, I figure Thibodeau has to change if he's going to stay in this job beyond three years, which nobody really with the Knicks has since Jeff Van Gundy. Um, something would have to change. Do you have any? We can't know this, but just from your own experience following sports, following other sports, being involved in sports, like whatever in your life, the sports, where does Tom Thibodeau evolve? What externally could have an influence on him to evolve? Or do you think you're just crossing your fingers and hoping a man who's been this way for 10 years is going to change? I don't think it's changed so much as um, accommodate, adapt. Yeah, acclimate. Just acclimate. Yeah, like we don't need him to. You know, he's going to be. He's going to be a guy that, um, that, you know, um, that wants them to play defense, um, and who wants control, and all of those things, and who wants to ride the vets. Like, I mean, the things like the minute stuff and all of that, like. I get annoyed when we like the Knicks are like, there's like a 20 point swing happening and the lineup clearly isn't working and he just sticks with it. Those kind of things. I'm not going to kill him over. Um, and the question is, is there a ceiling on the offense with Tom Thibodeau here? And if I, I mean, first of all, to, if they were to bring him help, um, um, you know, I would prefer to use Johnny Bryant. I think they have some good offensive minds on the staff. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the thing that we need him to change on isn't the biggest change to make. I think it is playing up-tempo. That's basically it, like encouraging them to get out in transition, letting them play a little more freely on offense. And I think over the summer, like <clears throat> during the offseason, um, um, you know, during the offseason, he did emphasize that. Um and, um, and you know, so I think that he, he, you know, we might not see it right now. And it seemed like after the first 10 games, he reverted to his old habits. And for all we know that, you know, just those emphasis, because Kemba wasn't who they expected him to be, because Randall regressed, those were kind of the reasons that drew him into that and made him lose the faith. But I don't think it's, I don't think he needs to change that much because I think he gets the, the wisdom of playing fast. But I think when he doesn't trust the talent, he's not going to let them do that. And the last thing I'll say is this, right? I've mentioned this a bunch of times, but as much as we get on him for not playing the young players, his track record with young players is terrific. Um, And when guys say, you know, he's killing their... If you say that, you know, we need to play Cam Reddish or quickly or Obi Toppin more because it makes the team better, there's a lot of good arguments for that. But when people say he's hurting their development by not giving them reps, that's where I'm like, no, look at his track record. Um, and you know that in his practice, he's pointing out everything they like. You can't argue with that. Um, and I, I'm, I'm pretty confident, given their work ethic, everyone they've gotten, as well as him, that's not the issue. So it really comes down to: is he willing to let the Knicks? And and the only way to find out is once we have that personnel here that really can do that at a high level and earns that trust. Will he will he give them that, or is he going to? Is it going to be a situation where even when we have the talent to compete? the offense bogs down in the playoffs and we can't beat elite teams or we, we, we stay at the third, fourth seed level, even when we have the personnel to be better because we're holding the offense back. And um, 
I'm still willing to say I think that can happen if he trusts the players more. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't trust these guys right now. Um, and, um, and, and some of that is warranted, as we saw tonight. There are guys who are, are very up and down. And as much as we'd like to see them get a bigger role, he sees them in practice every day. So I haven't, I haven't given up on Tibbs yet. I go back and forth. Um, and I think it is possible for him to change if he gets the kind of guys he's willing to trust and, and play a little bit more freely. Because when you think about it, when Thibodeau, I mean, he's like you're saying, he is who he is. He's never going to become, he's not going to be Mike D'Antoni with an offense. But when Thibodeau was in Chicago and Thibodeau had a great player to work with, the Bulls won 60 games, got to the Eastern Finals, I think, a couple of times. When he coached in Minnesota and he had Jimmy Butler and he had Towns, um, that team got to the playoffs for the first time in forever. Um, and maybe could have become more if things hadn't collapsed as quickly as they did. He hasn't had, like, Randall had a great season last year. And and if you look at it, like, last year, the Knicks lucked into a performance by a player that basically was, I mean, it was an all-NBA-level player. And behind that, and, and Thibodeau and other things, they vastly exceeded everyone's expectations. This year, with Randall's regression to what it's become, the Knicks... Really, like when you look at when you look at the outcomes of the players on the team this year and who's been successful and who hasn't, we're talking earlier about how Mitchell Robinson is probably the best player on the team, and that's awesome in the context of talking about Mitchell Robinson. But when you're talking about the team, like if you saw another team in the NBA and their best player was Mitchell Robinson, that tells you what that team's what that team can do and what that team can't do. And I think Yeah, to put it in perspective, the team we lost to, their best or second best player is Rudy Gobert, depending on who you ask. I'm not I, we don't need to have that argument, but Mitch is like seventy five percent of Rudy Gobert mm-hmm. for the last that's that's our best player, right? So that kind of puts it in perspective. So I think Thibodeau like you're saying, I, I agree with you. I think And that's a that's a Frank Barrett quote, sorry. That's seventy five percent of Rudy Gobert. That's a Frank Barrett quote, but sorry, go on. Go on. Yeah. Seventy five percent of Rudy Gobert is fine if he's your fourth best player. Um, but like you're saying, I, I, I still feel like, let me see. I don't think Thibodeau came to New York to work for Leon Rose and have his best player be Mitchell Robinson. Like, you know, something's going to happen and then it'll be really interesting to see. Um, it wouldn't be unprecedented. You said getting him help, um, in a formal, even in a formal capacity, it it wasn't a good omen at the time, but when D'Antoni went into his last season with the Knicks, um, he was in a, a final year of his deal, his fourth year. And they brought in Mike Woodson as a like a defensive coordinator. And it wasn't D'Antoni's idea. Like, the Knicks brought him in. Um, I don't see Thibodeau <laughs> indulging someone telling him we're going to bring in an outside offensive coordinator. But he certainly has more job security than D'Antoni did. Um, just It wouldn't be unprecedented to give your coach who's really good at one side of the ball and that's a place the Knicks can flex, you know, there's a salary cap. There's only so much you can do with players, but like the Knicks can pay literally any assistant coach, any amount of money they want. They'll get the best and brightest and, and bring that person in, you know? I mean, then you, you have the, I mean, that can cause locker room dynamics, right? Like yeah. not just between Tibbs' ego, right? But also the players, you know, you, that can faction. Like I get why they wouldn't do that. And I think they have quality assistants. I don't think it's the question of, 
Uh, I mean, you Johnny Bryan is coming from this team we just played tonight, right? Right. Um, right. I think if he was to be the offensive coordinator, I would appreciate that. Um, but that kind of impacts the defense, right? Playing fast and possibly turning the ball over. Right. Tim's just. And I think yeah, like because we were we were talking with Seth again, like, bring it up, but like saying Tibbs is basically a control freak, and you know when you allow the players, you, you put in sets that allow the players to read and react more. Um, you know, there's it, that's high variance, right? There's more likelihood of a turnover. There's more likelihood that you end up with a bad shot. But there's variance on the top end too, and part of it, like you can see when the Knicks play with more pace. This was clear, I think, in the first half too. You can see, especially RJ, Fournier, Barrett, there's times when they like, even when you're running a set, when they'll sprint into the action, right? The guys will, are making reads. Um, you know, not just, I'm not just talking about the guys with the ball, but if it's Fournier and he's coming off a, a pin down or something, he's reading his defender and, and he has kind of counters to it, right? Um, and when they don't, it, I think it, it seems like sometimes they don't pre plan as much of what they're going to do on offense. The players have a little bit more freedom, uh, and they can do that. And I think that everyone plays harder uh, when they do that. Uh, and I think there's times when, when Tibbs kind of leans into it, but when things go along a little bit, um, he doesn't. And I will say the one player who seems to play the most free is, I don't think coincidentally, the one who Tibbs has trusted and known the longest, and that's Derek Rose, right? I think there's ever been a question where, where Rose is playing tentatively or playing slowly. Um, and I think that so because that's been something that's talked about a lot, right? The starters tend to play slower. Um, you know, not you know they don't they don't seem to be as dynamic in their sets. They're not. There's a lot more stagnation, whereas the bench does uh, bench does do those things, right? It's weird. It's like if it's a tips problem, why does one unit do it so much better than the other? I think part of that is when Rose is here, Tibbs does trust him, and Rose knows he has a pretty long leash. But I think with the other players, I think the bench knows that they're going to get their five, six minutes, and that's all they're going to get. So they kind of, they they just do shit, you know? Yeah. Um, and it works. Uh, and I think when when the starters have felt that freedom, um, all of them, and, and so that's why, you know, when you talk about Julius Randle, like the body language police and all the videos and all of that, and is he playing hard? Does he give a shit? I think those kind of things matter. and um, And that's maybe the biggest thing of all, for Tibbs is can he get his guys to play more freely without losing who he is as a coach and like he should be that hard ass like that's a good thing to have like a coach who cares and like who's going to get on you for making mistakes but can he get his players to play more freely on offense and be willing to relinquish some of that control but just the right amount we're not asking to be David Fisdale um, <laughs> and when you phrase it like that when you tell him don't change who you are but grow right um you know, then um, that's uh, that's probably a more feasible ask. And as someone who's obsessed with winning over everything else, yeah. I, I think I'm more optimistic on that than anything else. But I think he will need guys who are, A, a little bit more talented offensively than what he has, and B, can kind of continue to play confidence confidently and not be affected. Um, and I, I mean... This is pure conjecture, but I think the difference between Randall when he's playing fast and confident versus when he's slow, even even something like today, there were like he had Bogdanovich on him, and it wasn't just that he was attacking that matchup from the three point line. There were numerous times when he would run down the court, pin Bogdanovich at ten feet or twelve feet, 
And then that's like, that's, you're done. He, I think he drew a ton of fouls like that. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I'm talking about with Randall. When he's, when he sets hard screens, which is capable, when he sprints into his cuts, uh, when he pushes the ball instead of jogging it up. Um, and I think part of that is when you are given that freedom to read and react and, and play like that. Um, and um, in the last few games, I, I will say we were talking about this. And, and sorry, I know I've been talking about it, but definitely interested in your thoughts on this as well. But we were talking about, you know, the last few games, it feels like the Knicks have played faster. And is that a product of the fact that, well, they played like the seventh, the sixth, and the third fastest teams? But tonight, the Jazz are only... 16, so they're not a super fast team. And yet I still saw quite a bit of the Knicks playing faster. So if Tibbs is kind of pushing them to do that and getting them um, getting them into those um, getting them into those moments um, or getting them to say, you know, like, yeah, don't make mistakes, but I'm going to, like, I want you to play fast. I want you to play free and I want you to, to like, to do those things. Baby is changing and it's it's just, you know, we're losing brutal games, but um, you know, I, I don't think that that's out of the question. Um, but I just talked for a while. Like, what are your thoughts on all of that? I would say that I know it's getting late in the season. If the if the playoffs are your goal, it's getting late in the season to say this. But I, when the Knicks lost, um, the last game, I'm trying to remember the last game on the home stand. The Memphis was the last game on their home stand. I think, yeah. Um, and that was not a good way to end a homestand. And that felt to me like a stamping of, okay, the season is basically probably done because they had a stretch where it seemed like there were a lot of winnable games for them. And that was a stretch they entered like needing to make up ground. And they pretty di- were pretty relatively disappointing to what you were hoping they would achieve going into the Memphis game. And then they get killed. And they're coming out west, and like as soon as I saw LeBron was playing, I was like, "A fucking course!" Like, you know. And yeah. despite the fact that they lost a gut wrenching game Saturday against the Lakers, and the disappointment of looking as good as they did tonight through most of three quarters, and then losing to the Jazz, is that I feel that they're playing better, they're playing well. Like the Knicks can play well and lose to a team that has LeBron James and Anthony Davis, like both there. Um, And the Knicks are a team that can play relatively well, certainly for three quarters and go to Utah and lose. Because a lot of NBA teams can play relatively well for three quarters in Utah and lose. And a lot of NBA teams can face LeBron James and Anthony Davis and lose. But I think and it's been characteristic of the team for the most part in the little over a year and a half that Rose and Thibodeau have been there. Um, there's never been a sense to me that the team was like losing it from the outside. And you may not know what's going on, obviously, but like I never, with all the hysteria around the team, the Knicks in interviews and, and other than I would say Randall's body language on the court look pretty like focused and, and and okay and that coupled with playing well they've been beaten the last two games but I don't feel like they've lost they've been beaten um now you know they have a stretch of games they still have to get through this trip but despite the fact that it's opened 0 and 2 I feel 
better than I did when they left off the Memphis game. That's interesting. Um, I think the fact that they've strung together, I feel a lot better than the worst I felt this season about the Knicks was that stretch around Martin Luther King Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, they lost. They got blown out by Charlotte. They got blown out by. They lost to Minnesota, and then they got blown out by New Orleans. Um, yeah. You know that was where it was clear how much you know it looked like they just lacked athleticism. I mean, they've lost now nine of eleven. Um, but if you look at you know if you look at the schedule, it has been hard for them. Like of late, they, it's been hard, and I don't think they've really gotten blown out in a while. I thought they were competitive against Memphis. Um, I didn't. I thought that there were a lot of good signs from that game. LA is a good team. It was frustrating. Um, and then tonight, you know, they played really well for three quarters, and the bench sucked, and the starters ran out of gas. Like I'm not going to kill them over that. Um, I thought they were more competitive than I thought against Milwaukee. So they haven't had a truly terrible game where they. I mean, I'm saying like when they played like shit, right? Yeah. They haven't played like shit since that Miami game. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the game before that was a, a pretty good performance against Cleveland. So of late, since that New Orleans game, they've had one stinker in Miami and a, and a bunch of like pretty good performances. And if this is earlier in the year and they hadn't already blown a bunch of games, I'd be pretty happy with it. But it's too little too late at this point. And um, that doesn't mean you have to go fire sale at the deadline. Um, but I think it might mean that you do have to reevaluate. Like Tibbs is never going to tank. I don't think we should tank. But um, you know, what value is is someone like Alec Burks giving you um, that you're not that you wouldn't get from Cam Reddish, right? Like, if is it a few extra games? Is there a point to pay him ten million dollars to do that um, for the next two years? You know, um, is there a point to you know? I mean, Kemba Walker, I think, is probably not going to play. Whether you're trying to win or, or, or tank or whatever, he's just not going to play. Um, so, and then same thing with a guy like Nerlens Noel, right? I mean, is there value to giving Jericho Sims minutes? Uh, is there value to kind of going for that? Because I think that um, it's not to say that the Knicks are not good enough to be a play-in team, because I think they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, if anything, the last two games have shown me that. But the way the chips have fallen... Uh, in terms of their winning games, they're not there. Um, it, it is what it is. You know, they're they've now fallen behind Atlanta. Um, you know, and and it's still within reach, but it's a brutal schedule. And um, you know, they could go five hundred, and that might not be enough, right? If they're twenty four and thirty right now, so what? That's twenty eight games left. Thirty eight and forty four. Yeah, that's that's probably not good enough. Um, and and even going five hundred against the schedule would be pretty good and um i i think they're they're better team than 24 and 30 i think they're good enough to make the play in but the way the seasons of season has gone it hasn't that doesn't seem to be in the cards and that's fine sometimes you have to pivot from that but um i mean first of all is, are those your thoughts do you still have more hope on the knicks making it do you think they've turned a corner maybe with some of these better performances and, and we can expect them to to kind of close that gap or the knicks The thing with the Knicks, like, yes, I think they could make the play-in tournament, and I'm still rooting for it just because that's my, like, message of brain as a fan. Like, I want the team to win, basically. Um, but I think 
I don't expect it to happen. And the reason I don't expect it to happen is, is, is that there's just so many nights where the Knicks need the Knicks need a certain number of things to go right against consistent good opposition because the Knicks are not built like to the Knicks are not built to blow you out. Like the Knicks are built to to try and win, but they're not uh, I'm trying to think how to put this. Like I don't think that the Knicks are going to make the playoffs because I still think they have too many games left against other teams who have better players and who have the best players. I think the Knicks, especially as a New York City team, lend themselves to a certain kind of analysis that might not be um, totally fair for them because they're built in such a way like they're they're basically a stone's throw from a five hundred team and have been like for a while, which means they're always going to win some games that they shouldn't and lose some games that they shouldn't and not blow people out really and not get blown out really. Um, it's just a very small margin um, of error. And I think the irony, as the season gets later and they remain where they are, I really thought by now the Knicks, I really thought that last stretch of games, they had into January like a uh, like an 18-game stretch of like some decent games and they didn't do much with that. And I think at this point in the season, I feel like if the Knicks don't, make it I thought last year it was a like a, a blessing for the Knicks that they got into the playoffs and they got in as a as the four seed because if the Knicks had gotten to the play in tournament and lost, I don't think they would have learned that much like about themselves. And if they had gotten matched up against Brooklyn or Milwaukee or maybe Philadelphia, but certainly Brooklyn and Milwaukee, like they might have just been blown out of the water and like not learned that much about themselves. But I think because they got in and they got in to match up against a team that, you know, they learned something from because they weren't just what you, you were. You were, it wasn't just oh, you lost to the Warriors or you lost to the Suns. Like the Hawks were a team a lot of people thought the Knicks could beat or would beat. You learned something from that. If they don't make it this year, I think they can get more out of not making it than they will if they make it. Because I feel like if they make the play in tournament. Even if they advance, um, they're going to get like Miami, which is a terrible matchup for them. Or they're going to get, I don't know, Milwaukee. Like, I, I don't want to see that. I, I don't think that does anything for the Knicks long term. But if, if they miss the playoffs and as a result learn something about what they overrated or come to some organizational notion of like, okay, you know, we, we have to open up maybe some ideas that we thought were closed because look at how unexpected. I think that can be better. Like just like success can sometimes in the moment work against your long-term success. When Alan Houston made that shot against Miami, that's why Jeff Van Gundy coached the Knicks for another one, two, two seasons instead of Phil Jackson signing to coach God knows how many. Now I'm not, I want, I'm, I'm not saying I would give that up because that shot was the shot, but it was a moment where small success cost you ultimately more. I'm okay if they miss the playoffs because I think that small failure in the hands of a competent organization, which I still believe they are, 
can yield something like much greater. Yeah, and to be honest, I don't even think I don't even know if it's they made incorrect assumptions. I think they just didn't have a lot of options to get better this summer, right? Yeah, um, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, I mean, a lot of people wanted Lonzo Ball. I was kind of on the fence of it. Um, in retrospect, it looks like it would have helped. Um, but who knows? Like, I think the biggest thing is someone who can really score at three levels. They don't have that, and that that guy was really out there. You know, you can say they should have signed Fred Van Fleet a couple of years ago, but that wasn't an option. Um, but Lonzo, even if, like, I think there's an argument that he would have been a good option, right? But Chicago got docked for tampering him with him, right? Uh, and they gave him a first round pick, which the Knicks may not have been comfortable doing. Yep. Um, and say what you want, but Chicago had traded for Vucevic, and um, and they already had Zach Levine, um, and Randall was better than at least certainly Vucevic last year. But the, they're both on his level, so they had they had talent. And they had the ability to kind of to, to offer a big deal to Lonzo. And, 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 you know, I think a lot of players probably knew that um, the Knicks aren't really like they, they were a little bit of maybe not a paper tiger last year, but they're still, you know, they, they don't have the talent to compete. Yeah. Uh, and so, the, like, of those options, they decided to maximize flexibility and do the best they could to get incrementally better without creating backward momentum and, and without losing any of their young assets. Um, so, I mean, what did they learn this year is probably more, how do they feel about the younger players? Um, and I think you learned that they took another step, right? And I think if like, you know, it wasn't probably going to be fourth seed linear improvement. They probably also learned that Julius Randall is not the guy he was last year. Uh, and either there's, you have to use him a little bit differently, um, or you have to get him a certain type of help. Or, um, or um, you know, you uh, or, or, or you know, you maybe you move on, or you make another decision. And they also learned, I think, that um, they learned about some of the guys they acquired. Right? They learned that Kemba probably is done. Uh, they've learned, I think, which they probably should have already known, that as good as Derrick Rose is, you really can't count him for more than fifty games. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they learned, I think, that quickly isn't quite ready to be a full time starter. Right? Um, even though I think you know. He, he still grew. They learned that putting Grimes should be close to untouchable. Um, they learned that RJ Barrett continues to improve. So I don't think there's anything, like, unless you really thought the Knicks were going to win a title, they, there wasn't going to be a huge, there wasn't going to be something big. I don't think the front office was taking that kind of swing. I think they would have liked to get back to the playoffs. But I think if you look at how free agency went, it's not like last year suddenly transformed them into a destination. What they've, what they did, and you know, this is what you know, what Seth was saying too. The Knicks are not a laughing stock anymore, right? We've had some excruciating losses, probably underachieved a little bit, but no one is laughing at the Knicks, as, as you know, as they were during the Fizdale era and some of the bad eras. So, um, you know, in terms of all of that, this is—I don't think the, this is a disappointing season for the front office. Um, I think they're going to once again pick their spots, see where the opportunities are. They know a little bit more about which young players they might be comfortable letting go or, or what the value is for them and, and go from there. Stacy, we're going to close with our trivia. Um, I want to make sure we're clear on where we stand here. You mentioned Ewing, Camby, and Cartwright, correct? Yep. So, yeah, Mitchell Robinson is fifth. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming into tonight, he had 400 blocks. 
Camby, I'm, I was mistaken, sorry, earlier. Marcus Camby is sixth. That's who Mitch passed Oh, wow. to get to number five. So there are um, four Knicks ahead of him. You mentioned earlier two of them. Patrick Ewing is number one. Bill Cartwright is number two. Cartwright is one ahead of the man in third, and then there's someone between that man and Mitchell Robinson. Any guesses as to... These are all post-1980 players who are third and fourth. Um, So after Mitch, we went to... I mean, is it Tyson Chandler? Is he one of them? No, Tyson Chandler is 14th behind Kenny Walker. He just didn't have an... Oh, wow. Because he was only there, you know, three years. Um, yeah, I know. I, I mean, right behind, to... right behind Tyson Chandler in 15th, Carmelo Anthony. Um, it can't be like, can't be like Eddie Curry. It can't be, um, Oakley wasn't that much of a shot blocker. Oh, let me, let me be fair. One of them is in the eighties. One of them, um, one of them is, is a 20th century player on the Knicks. I'm sorry, 21st century player on the Knicks. Um, that, that was really bugging me. Um, well, Mitch brought these up quickly, so we had any. Um, we've had one good shot blocker before Mitch, but he didn't play. KP yeah. is seventh on the list. And then before that, we had like O'Quinn. I don't think he was that good of a shot blocker. He is tenth. Um, there was Robin Lopez, but he played. We should have played more than one year. Yeah. The, that was the Derek Rose trade I didn't like. Right, um, right. <laughs> same here. Um, can't be Zach Randolph. It can't be Curry. No, it's not Curry. I'm just going through all the centers at this point. Uh, yeah, I, I, I give up. So. Mitch is fifth with 400. In fourth, with 479 block shots, Kurt Thomas. Ah. Because he was there forever. He was eight years a Nick. Um, yeah. He actually averaged less than a block per game. Um, and then in third, one behind Bill Cartwright for second, one of the great nicknames in Nick history, Marvin the Human Eraser Webster. Wow. Six years. Just to show you how awesome Ewing is, so Webster has 542, Cartwright in second has 543, Ewing in first has 2,758. So <laughs> it appears that Pat's record will be good for a while, although Mitch is still very young. I'm going to give you, Stacy, just before we sign off, if you have time, a bonus trivia question. Um, All right. There are six players in NBA history who have had a 50-point triple-double. Um... Four of them have played for the Lakers. One of them played for the Knicks. Can you name this... any of the six players in NBA history with a 50-point triple-double? Does the sixth one play for the Nets right now? The first one plays for the Nets. So Harden, right? Yeah, Harden has five, which is the most ever. But you said four Lakers and one Nick, so yeah, he's, he's the six. other one. Yeah, Harden's the other one. Yep, he's number one. Um, Magic? Magic Johnson, not on the list. Kobe? Kobe Bryant, not on the list. Four Lakers, neither Magic nor Kobe. I mean, 
I'm pretty sure Kareem did that on the Bucks when everyone was doing Oh, Wilt. Wilt has to have done that. Yeah, right? Wilt and Kareem both did it. Um, fourth and fifth. Uh, all right. I'm going to skip on the Lakers. Who would be the Knicks to have done it? The obvious answer is Patrick Ewing, but it's not Ewing. Um, 36 and 19 and 7 is not a 50 point trouble double, but I'm trying to think if Ish Smith's biggest fan would have done it. That's my next guess. <laughs> it's not Clyde. Not Clyde. Um, and then the other two Lakers. Um, the other two Lakers would be so. We mentioned said, one of them in this broadcast. Mentioned one. Um, well, I was going to say Jerry West. I'm just thinking of like this the stats era from like the late '60s and early '70s, but it wasn't Jerry West. Not Jerry West. What Lakers did we mention? Um, he was mentioned, I think, once. Uh, LeBron? No. You would think yes, so. A... You would think, like, obviously LeBron. But no. And we did mention him once for a completely different <laughs> yeah. reason. What did, did they do it on the Lakers, or they were a Laker? They were a Laker. They were not Laker. They were not a Laker when they did it. But they are a Laker now. Anthony Davis. No. They are a Laker at this moment in time? They are. Oh, okay. Mr. Triple Double. Yes. Uh, um, okay. So you have the five non-Knicks. Any more guesses on who the Nick is? Um, well, I think, funny note, I watched the Lakers game with a Lakers friend. Yeah. And um, every time Westbrook took a shot, he just groaned. I mean, it's <laughs> bad there. Like, and some of them were just awful. Did you see that moment late in the game when Westbrook started to square up in the corner? And the crowd, like, basically moaned him out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was amazing. Well, I mean, yeah, because he had air balls. He had one that was, like, a 10-foot bank shot that hit off the glass. Like, I I literally, before the game, was talking to a friend of mine who still is, like, kind of, like, pro-Westbrook and, and, like, doesn't hate the idea of him on the Knicks. And I was like, so you understand, like, we just got off Alfred Payton, who was the worst shooter I've ever seen and is reticent to shoot because of that. Westbrook, in my mind, when I think of Westbrook as a poor shooter, it's always, I've seen it at least three times in games. He takes that bank shot from the left, from about, I don't know, 15 feet out, and he hits like the top of the backboard. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if Tim Duncan's ever watched that and just like, oh my God. And, and um, yeah, they did a. There was a shot chart from like Kirk Goldsberry today, and then it was like efficient EFG, and then volume of jump shots. So at the upper right, you can guess who was there. It's Steph, and then at the if you did a mirror image across the x axis, <laughs> it was Russ with the same number of attempts. But um, but anyway, like um, Bernard King, excellent guess, but no. Um. I don't think Melo. I would have remembered if Melo did it. Um, wasn't yeah, Melo famously when he put up sixty-two had no assists? Yeah, yeah, that's the game I remember. <laughs> um, is it is it like a Hall of Famer? It is a Hall of Famer. Pearl? It's not Pearl. He never scored like that. Um, yeah, not with the Knicks. And the prayer was with the Knicks when they did it, or no? I believe they were. I'll double check right now. 
They were. They were with the Knicks. Okay, so it's not Tracy McGrady. Averaged 29 and a half that season. Um... Was it um, Michael Ray Richardson ever did that, did he? No. 29.5 points, 6.5 rebounds, 7 assists per game for the season. Yeah, I'm really pulling a blank. Sorry, I'm not going to get this. All-time Nick Great Richie Guerin. Uh, oh, man. From the old black and white era. In 1962, Richie Guerin had a 50-point... Triple double. That was the year. That was the year. Was it the same? I think it was the same game, wasn't it? As Will's hundred, or was it not? It might have been. You're right. It definitely might have been. Because that was a game where like everyone was putting up. Everybody went off in that game. That was like Don Nelson coaching against like Mike D'Antoni. Um, let me. Yeah, I'm gonna pull that up really quickly here. Um, no, it was not. Sorry. Uh, in his second season with the Knicks. Um. Oh no! It was against the Phil. It was against the Philadelphia Warriors. Um, Wait, no that that was won. the game, wasn't it? That wasn't uh, the. Looking, I'm looking at the Wilt was on the Warriors when that right happened. Now. I'm looking at the box score. Wilt had. Wilt only had 67 that night. Um, okay, so different game. I think Aaron did have like 45. Yeah, he had. Yeah, he had 39. Uh, I don't see assists. He had 39 on 29 shots. I don't see assists and rebounds from him. Mm. But Okay. Well, <laughs> Wilt only had 67. But <laughs> Richie Guerin, yeah, I, sh- I, f- I do feel upset about not getting that. We're doing, um, we announced it on the, on the Strickland um, portraying that we're unveiling a, a top 75 Nick list um, this season over the next couple of months and two things that are really interesting and we'll, we'll go after this. I know it's been running long, but just two things that are interesting about really diving into Nick history are is <laughs> the Knicks are such a transient organization and always have been that you will be amazed at some of the names that are on the list for the top 75. Like they are not players you would ever think of as top 75 players, but sometimes just by virtue of like, being a Nick for four or five years and like being kind of consistent at the time really does put you on the list. I mean, the Knicks have always been just this very nexus of movement kind of an organization. And if you look back at like a lot of the old teams, like the Knicks had a lot of really good players that you've never heard of. Um, the teams from the, especially the fifties into the early sixties, um, Richie Guerin, Harry Gallatin, there's Carl Braun, but there's like uh, Dick McGuire, uh, Jumping Johnny Green. There's a guy in the early 80s I never heard of named Toby Knight, who his second season with out of out of college averaged like 19 a game and like shot really, really well. And then like I think he had like a bad knee injury and that was the end of him. There's just so many. Uh, they're, they're a very interesting franchise to dig into historically. I'll just say that. Yeah, I mean. That's why we're fans, right? After all of this. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, this is fun. A um, little cathartic after another rough loss, but um, I think I'm reaching the point of the season where 
I'm trying not to get too down on these at this point and uh, just looking for the positives. So yeah, yeah. Knicks will um, wrap up their three-game road trip this week. Um, trade deadline is Thursday. We will probably come to you around then because there will either be news or really intense rumor mongering going on. And either way, there'll be something to talk about. But uh, keep an eye on things, see what happens and what's rumored to happen. Watch the games. For Stacy Patton, I am Matthew Miranda. We'll see you next episode. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.